0: is in the air and it's time to go back to school announcing the tent autumn school on the gospel of john you may have noticed that there is a vast gap between christianity and the way of jesus a gap that seems to be widening now more than ever we need to go back to the source now more than ever we need the book of the beloved you are invited to a chapter-by-chapter study of this extraordinary account of Jesus, taking in the political, cultural, and theological aspects of the entire Gospel of John. We'll meet for 10 online sessions, led by me, Stephen Backhouse. We'll meet every Thursday from the 6th of October through to the 8th of December. To hit as many time zones as possible, the sessions will start at 8pm GMT. Each live session is one and a half hours, giving lots of time for teaching, discussion and friendship. Ask any question. Have your say. Meet fellow travellers. For prices and more info, visit the Courses and Resources page of the Tent Theology website or email me, stephen, at tenttheology.com to book your place for the Autumn School and the Gospel of John.
1: Welcome fellow traveler to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination.
0: Welcome Yoho Journals to a Zoomposium hosted by the Tent Talks podcast. My name is Stephen Backhouse. I'm the host of the Tent Talks podcast and every once in a while listeners of the show will know That we like to partner with a pirate journal called the Yoho Journals. This is a pirate journal set up for outside rebellious and other forms of interesting thinking in the world of theology and psychology and culture and art. And we have had a few other Yoho Journal guests in the past. And today I am very glad to welcome our friend, Dr. Richard Beck, to the show. Richard Beck is, let me read. Let me read the biography of Richard Beck from the back of his Yoho journal. Richard Beck is an award-winning author, speaker, blogger. And can you be an award-winning blogger, Richard? We'll all we'll talk about this. Hey,
2: I, hey, hey, I got an award. Okay. So Richard Beck
0: is was... a liar. He's a liar who's trumped up his <laughs> credentials. Richard Beck is an award-winning author, speaker, blogger, and professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University, which is in Texas. Every Monday, Richard leads a Bible study for 50 inmates at the maximum security French Robertson unit. And Monday to Friday, on his popular blog, Experimental Theology, Richard will spend enormous amounts of time writing about the theology of Johnny Cash, the demonology of Scooby Doo, or the latest Bible class on monsters. Dr. Beck, thank you for coming to this uh, Zoom posium. Thank you for coming to the Tent Talks. We would like to hear from you first about your essay, A Hope-Sick World. Over to you, Richard.
2: Okay, great. Hey, it is good to be with you and to see, I know this is a podcast, but on a Zoom call here, seeing many friendly faces and dear friends. So hello to everybody. Um, I know you're on mute right now, but I see you. Uh, yeah, so I wrote the this entry, And I wrote it with a bit of provocation in mind. And so I hope readers of the article and those who responded felt irritated by the article, uh, chagrined, um, uh, provoked in some way. That That was intentional. So let me try to describe what I felt was the provocation in it and then get to the actual content about it. So the provocation was based upon something I've observed in the host community, which I know a lot of uh, people listening in are a part of, and also the Yoho community. And it, it's that, I think, in a lot of our conversations, because a lot of us have a shared background um, or or uh, um, a shared uh, cultural worldview because of a Christian heritage. We Either we are part of the Christian heritage or we're Post-Christian, at least, you know, we might have walked away from it, but still share broadly uh, Christian sensibilities uh, metaphysically or with values. And because we share a lot of those background values and metaphysics, sometimes I feel like we can get frustrated with the work that we do and the things that we recommend for the world um, because it all makes perfect sense to us because of those shared background assumptions, and values, uh, and metaphysical commitments, but then when we step outside of this community with recommendations or proposals or ideas, we we are tend to met with maybe indifference, and and so we end up collecting in bubbles of kind of like-minded consensus and look look at a world that doesn't seem to be attracted to all of our policy and economic proposals uh, for making a better world. And I think one of the reasons why that happens a lot is because we aren't making the metaphysical commitments of our community explicit, because I think that there's a deeper, I think that's where the the conflict is coming from, where the resistance is coming from, and that we often in these journals and in our conversations are doing descriptive work. But really what we need is values work, because because what happens in our community is we do the descriptive work. We all agree that the world is spinning out of control in a certain kind of way. And because of our values, that description leverages into a moral response. But then we do the descriptive work for people who don't share those values, and then they 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 don't they don't budge. And so one of the provocations of my article was I didn't want to just be descriptive. I could have done that. I could have just said the world is increasingly hopesick, and we should all have hope. That would be a pretty banal thing to do or say. So instead I wanted to make my metaphysics explicit and by doing that if you looked at some of the responses um that's where the conflict would come out uh a little bit a little bit of the tension there but I think you have to do that um to so let me give you like an illustration from two i what I responded to e's article and David's article who are listening in and so that we kind pulled him into the conversation like in, in my response to David's article if you recall David's article he made a A distinction between bios and zoe um and made made a contrast and in my response to that article i was saying but anything that really um to make a contrast between bios and zoe you're going to have to have prior to that sorting some metaphysical commitments and everything interesting about that contrast isn't at the descriptive level it's at the values and metaphysical level and so when i hear the description of bios and zoe what i'm more interested in is the prior metaphysical commitments that caused us to sort the world in that particular way, because I feel like that is where the the conversation needs to to be about. Like with Eve's article where she uh, referenced donut economics, I think descriptively speaking, donut economics makes a lot of sense. And for those of you listening and don't know what donut economics is, right? The sustainable economic, um, models should be concerned about the hole at the middle where we put down a platform of basic, you know, human thriving and make sure people don't fall underneath that platform into destitution and yet we're also monitoring the outside band of the donut which is ecological and environmental sustainability. Right? So descriptively speaking that's really powerful. But not everybody shares the value commitments to be concerned about the degree of deprivation in the world, or obviously when we see kind of rapacious greed and economic growth, people don't care about that outside bound as well. So we can describe economic situations, but until we have some metaphysical or value conversations, the description isn't being leveraged into a moral response. So we could talk a little bit about that in my diagnosis there. But to me, I feel really committed to trying to make the metaphysics explicit because I really feel like that is the thing that's missing. We're doing a lot of description in these conversations about the why the world is. Mm-hmm. And we're not getting any sort of moral response because I don't think people share certain metaphysical or values commitments. Anyway, so I, I got really very metaphysical in the paper about that. So let me talk about the content so talk, of the paper yeah, very talk briefly. Us through.
0: You went straight to the yeah, let me, people's comments. Talk us through your original argument are you all yeah yeah so let me
2: so let me yeah so so anyway uh yeah that was a meta level comment right which i'm sure bored everybody listening in or whatever but but i think whole hopefully it'll set up what i what i was talking about in the paper so what i i make basically two claims in the paper one is that human beings are inherently teleological creatures we're goal oriented and purpose driven uh creatures um and But in capitalism has fundamentally kind of hijacked the teleological um, apparatus of the human mind, Um, and that in a post-Christian or even a post-metaphysical world, uh, capitalism now lacks a teleological rival. And by that I mean – The only compelling thing people are living for is some sort of reward that is provided through a capitalistic economy. So that's the first main argument that unless capitalism has a teleological rival, any appeals to change the world or any appeals to the revolution or whatever whatever social change you want to argue, unless you have a rival teleology that is as compelling as the next Marvel movie or the next Game of Thrones episode right, or whether you can compete with um, sugars and fats and and entertainment culture, unless you can compete with TikTok with my young students, right, unless you can provide a technology that is as compelling to the human mind and heart um, that we are going to fail to move any of the needles uh, that we are constantly describing um, and all the indicators of the world going um, into the ditch. So that's the first argument. Capitalism has no teleological rival um, and that we need to do – we need to provide the world with something better. Um, And that brings me to the second argument of the paper, which is – and this is a borrowing an argument from – is adding to – not borrowing, adding to an argument from Alistair MacIntyre in his book After Virtue. So MacIntyre makes an argument that teleology is what grounded and pointed the virtues towards some sort of outcome. A good life or an excellent life. And that lacking with the demise of kind of an Aristotelian vision of um, a teleological view of the world, um, now we have a moral uh, trash heap. We have all these different moral systems that don't point in the same direction anymore. In fact, they're often competing. If anybody's ever taken an ethics class, you know that the different moral systems on offer to the world point in many different directions. And so we can't all get on the moral same page because we lack a sense of what a life is for, or what a family is for, or what a business is for, or what a nation state is for, and lacking a, a vision of what those things are for, we can never evaluate where if a business is good, if an economy is good, if a nation state is good, if my even from a psychological perspective, even if my life is good, because we don't know what anything is for anymore. Um, so that's out that's. Alistair McIntyre's argument, my argument is that we've also inherited from our Christian past a suite of emotional expectations. Compassion is one of them. A universalized empathy for the suffering of the world is one of those things we've inherited from the Christian past. And, but another one of those, the focus miracle, is hope. We have a kind of default expectation that we should be hopeful. And psychologists also know that hope is really important to psychological health and well-being. And yet, we've inherited the emotional expectation that we should be hopeful, but we have lost the metaphysical apparatus that sustains hope. And so, in the article, I basically say we're trying to be hopeful nihilists. Um, we have an emotional expectation that the, you know, to borrow from Martin Luther King Jr., that the arc of the universe is bending towards justice, um, but we don't believe in that anymore. And so, consequently, we are in an increasingly emotionally unsustainable situation where we're trying to conjure up hope as a feeling, somehow I just have to wake up in the morning and just, I don't know, just create a subjective state of hopefulness when I, when I lack any sort of um, metaphysical infrastructure that suggests that there is, that these feelings actually are corresponding to, to reality. This isn't me just being optimistic or whistling in the dark and so i am pointing out how at the heart of um the emotional life of many people is um a, a disjoint between affectivity and 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 metaphysics or view of reality um and so uh and so again going back to what i said at the very beginning i am trying to make the metaphysical commitments explicit there to have a conversation about that because if we don't think hope is realistic, or if it's just a fantasy or a delusion, then hope isn't a reasonable emotional response. Um, and in fact, it could do you great physical harm um, to, to be, to trying to constantly try to feel hopeful in the face of despair. Um, you're just going to burn yourself out. And I think you're seeing a lot of people who have inherited certain emotions from the Christian past, like universalized compassion um, and hope. Without a, without a supporting metaphysical worldview, they're finding that 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 they're running in a lot of mental health problems. They're burning out. They, they're the like activist communities are are really struggling with issues of self care, and I would argue that a lot of the reason for the burnout, compassion fatigue, that we're we're seeing. Um, the, the physical mental health problems is related to this kind of fundamental disjoint, that we are Christian in affectivity, but we're post-Christian in metaphysics. And so that's the provocation of the article. So anyway, that was maybe longer than 10 minutes, but that's a summary of what I was trying to
0: do. And so then what is the positive metaphysical apparatus that you would that you are agitating for or wanting to shine a light on?
2: You're like what would what, what would a metaphysics of hope look like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one would have to have some some belief or commitment um that uh the way so the way like a Tolkien would describe it would say were in one of his letters, and I think I cited this in the article, where Tolkien describes his approach to history as the long defeat. And so he doesn't have an emotional expectation that a victory can be achieved within history. Um, And so thus, he kind of argues for, in his essay on fairy stories, for like a you catastrophe, a good catastrophe. Something has to come to me from the outside um, that I'm turning to uh, with an expectation of hope. And so, I would argue that you're going to have to come up with a metaphysics that would suggest that there is some force or power that is benevolently interested in stewarding history uh, to a good outcome, and again, that's the provocation. The provocation is well, what if i can't I think some of the some of the responses to the article were like, "Well, what if you can't believe in that anymore? You know like what if I just don't believe that anymore? I don't think anybody's out there
3: mm-hmm.
2: um." Then I would just come back to the point of the article, then then do your value – does your value system, your ethical urgency, your call to be hopeful, um, is that emotionally sustainable? Or do you need to reject hope and become more stoic and fatalistic? Right? Do you need to come up with an emotional response that is commensurate with your metaphysics? Um, Cause I think those are on offer, right? You can, you can opt for kind of a fatalistic stoicism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this, and I would say beyond affectivity, there's the same thing about your value systems. So, so to be clear, um, I am, I am putting us in a bit of a vice here. Um, and am I asking us to do a bit of diagnostic work between the things we espouse ethically, or the things we expect from ourselves psychologically, and ask whether or not we have the metaphysical system to, that makes those things sustainable. And if something needs to move, then something needs to move. Um, so we don't think hope is realistic. Mm-hmm. And fatalism and despair is probably the best way to go forward with life. And you, you've seen that in some activist communities, right? You, we just need to be pretty stoic and fatalistic about this kind of thing. Um, then that's fair. I think that's coherent and and congruent.
0: Well, if the Uh, world is, if nihilism is true, then some sort of fatalistic stoicism is is the best option, right? I mean, it's the most realistic option that is commensurate with the reality of the universe, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you're seeing seeing a rise in stoical philosophies um, amongst kind of post-Christian people. Yeah. Uh, and, and and so so
0: I'm not staying in judgment of those kinds of things.
2: I'm just saying that makes more sense to me right. than suge- than suggesting that we all should be hopeful.
0: So it's a, um, it's, a, it's a cry for honesty. You're not even trying to. It's very Kierkegaardian. You're not trying to convert people. You're just trying to get them to see clearly what camp they're in and not to use the language of one camp when they're trying to do a different project.
2: Yeah, because that's what I was saying at the beginning. We need to own that metaphysically. You either own it um, or you don't own it. Um, but we need some clarity about what's going on with the values there. Mm. And so if I make an ethical appeal to somebody that's gr- and I'm not persuading them of it, it's then we need to have a deeper vision of kind of how we evaluate what our responsibilities are, um, which brings us into religious metaphysical values mm-hmm. kind of based conversations. And I so I think it's time to yeah. kind of. Have conversations at that level, and if we have principal disagreements with people, then we have principal disagreements. But at least we're disagreeing um, in a, in a very clear way. Um,
0: but I than, can imagine, looking. Go right. ahead. Well, I can imagine, you know, if a Stephen Pinker or somebody was listening to this, because you, now you've put the Enlightenment and sort of liberal, progressive Enlightenment on one side, and and in a way, and it, it's kind of on the nihilistic side. It's the sort of choose your own adventure make a choice live with it uh, a sort of a consumeristic capitalist view of the world as it were where you where there is no right or wrong there is just sort of what we choose and and then you've said that that that's a hopesick uh world that that's created but i can imagine there are to play the devil's advocate there are enlightenment wow. fans out there that would say well no actually our hope is in progress uh we can prove it we can measure it we can argue that less people have died in war than before or that more women are free than they were before, or that racism is statistically you know, on, on the decline in certain areas and regions, we can prove it. We can prove that, that the arc of justice is moving towards something, and that's because of liberal enlightenment. Now, what would you say to someone like that, who says, no, my hope is based in the very thing that you are claiming is undermining hope?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, so that's and that's where I think we can have that's now we're at the level of description then we can yeah. describe the data right and so um and that's where I think David's work on Bios and Zoe is interesting because David, you know uh David's drawing attention to like the colonial the colonialism that was inherent in the enlightenment project right, right. um uh Eve's work with donut economics on like, yeah, the enlightenment's going really great, except for, I don't know, like the climate, Um, you know, like, like there's, there's things we could point to and kind of say there are great gains from the enlightenment. I don't, I don't think we would uh, reject those, but I do think we can see various ailments. And so I would, I would wibble with Pinker if if he thinks somehow the enlightenment and and some sort of technological messiah is on our future that's going to rescue us from the kind of the trajectory um, that we're on, and, and 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 we might have dueling pie charts to to argue about how how well we are, um, but yeah. there are indicators at least in my discipline that suggest things are backing up a little bit. So for yeah. example, the thing I cite. In the article, or the increase in upticks of deaths of despair in the United States and in the UK, where life expectancies like so. I think a couple of years ago, Pinker could have shown a life expectancy chart that showed us from like our Stone Age ancestors marching up and to the right. Um, but it's not up and to the right anymore. It's up and to the right and now going down because mm. of chronic alcoholism, yeah. suicide, and overdoses. So the jury's out. Um, yeah, so I so I do think not every graph that he could shoot up there, at least yeah. in recent times, um, can show an um, yeah a, a clear picture of, of of progress.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, say, uh, to say oh, yeah, go on finish sure. saying,
2: to say nothing to say nothing of the specter of nuclear war being back on everybody's radar screen. Yeah. to say nothing about um, the rise of totalitarianism across a variety of nation states um uh my own included so yeah so i don't know maybe i'm not as optimistic i should you know about some of that
0: i'm going to ask one more question then and then we're going to throw the floor open we've got some comments coming in already and I'll, i'll get the people who have already written comments for your essay to to think about how they might want to respond um one of the things that i noticed so you basically put the kind of a part of the idea well i'll just read i'll just read the quote right you said since the enlightenment mm-hmm. values have lost their factual status and have been regulated to the private subjective sphere the realm of our personally held beliefs and opinions so i agree i totally agree but i was a bit confused because when i was reading your essay one of the th- you, you you gave an anecdote of a young man who was feeling hopeless and and at the, the end of the story he basically just choose. he just chose which metaphysics he wanted to follow in order to inject his life with hope again how is that not just the same as this enlightenment project where your truth is a subjective private opinion i mean are, aren't we just still facing the idea of like well you got to choose your metaphysics and go with it
2: yeah no i mean that no that's that's a that's a that's a cogent insight um stephen um and so the way Charles Taylor would like argue it in like a book like a Secular Age is okay. that that the 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 naivete um, has been lost, and that going forward now that he would define a secular age as inherently the onset of choosing one's own metaphysics. Like okay. in, in many ways, you can argue that that's Ch- Taylor's definition of what we mean by secular, right? That secular isn't about the decline of um, the Anglican church attendance in the UK. They're like That's not secularism. Or um, the separation of church and state in the public sphere. That's not secularism. Taylor would argue that the onset of secularism is the condition of believing itself. And yeah, it's right. now fun- even belief itself is no longer a, a cultural consensus. And now we have, we have to choose it. And so you're right that that there is a kind of, and I think this is a valid criticism, right? So you can read my article and say, Richard, you know, I, I agree with that. I, I agree that with the loss of a tale, teleological view of the world that that uh, that, yeah, that we might be trying to be hopeful nihilists, but but you know, those days ain't coming back, right? We're not, and neither probably do we want the the medieval Mm christian them to come back either and i don't Mm -hmm. so so are we doomed to the paradox what you're pointing to which is we're we're still at the level of individual individual choice and i would say to go back to what i said at the beginning that's true that means for each person we come up we come to That's the conversation we need to have with them. We're not going to get a social consensus back in where where we establish a tele, But each person has to confront their own metaphysics and values. And that's what I was talking about at the very beginning, that we have to have a conversation at that level to move any sort of needle on social action. And unless you get some buy-in from a corporation to say these will be our values and these will be our commitments or a nation state or a human being… Then, then we can describe the heck out of how the world's being out of control, but until you get down to the levers levers of care which I think are pulled by metaphysical commitments uh, we're gonna just be met with either indifference or apathy so so you're right um he is still choosing his metaphysics his his teleology but but to me, I think unless we're willing to make that teleology explicit and actually name it then we can't convert people to it um or persuade people to it or or give them something more compelling than the kind of the pseudo pseudo metaphysics or the pseudo eschatologies that I think capitalism will give um yeah, yeah. and so so fun, you know so the answer so so the answer to be to use a christian word would be evangelism right look like you have to convert to a value system for those values to then create psychological leverage
3: right.
2: into a, into a new pattern of living, um, and so to me, where I think some of our conversations fails because we're not evangelistic; we're just being descriptive.
4: Okay,
2: we're just painting pretty pictures and say and say this is
0: the better world. We're evoking feelings, fa- aren't we? Sentiment rather than yeah, well,
2: because especially some of this stuff is hard, right? Like yeah. you're asking me to like live differently, and you're asking me like there's a price tag, and I could, you know, why why should I do all these things you're asking me to do when I could just stream another Netflix video? Now, like, gonna, what's going to penetrate? What's going to yeah. penetrate my apathy? Yes, you know, yes. With, with with you know, um, and and it's, so it's got to be something that will first of all penetrate my apathy. And to catalyze a moral response and sustain that moral response across the lifespan in a consistent way, especially when nobody is looking um, hmm. and it is actually sacrificial, right? Like um, that that's that's what I'm saying about kind of getting to the deeper motivational core of the human psyche. Um, which I think, I'm using the words values and metaphysics and all that kind of thing, but but maybe a deeper way to think about it is like what, what we ultimately care because our caring right. kind of reflects our metaphysics.
0: Right, this this is, now there's some chat that's happening around you, Richard. And yeah, I'm going yeah. to start calling on some of these interesting <laughs> chats. So Rina is the first person who started to talk about despair. He, she she was activated by this word when you start talking about despair. Rina, do you want to jump on the mic and tell us a little bit about Unpack your comment. And then also, you got to mention Philip K. Dick. You got to mention Philip K. Dick in this.
5: I teach at university and I'm teaching histories and contexts um, for students to then apply and get a job in the creative industries.
3: Mm -hmm.
5: So, in the last three years, in terms of how I deliver a school curriculum, really, um, the anxiety of young people is what's their future, right? Ooh. So we hear that all the time, like, oh, you know, and they, and they get typecast into labels that they don't even use themselves in actual fact. They don't, they care not. And even when I ask them, so you're a Gen Z, you're a Gen Y, yeah? Like, what? They, 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 they don't even know that such labels exist. Like, and then that's a fact. Like, um, so a lot of their uncertainty is that they live in a world where there's an expectation of them to fit a template of how they're meant to progress, how mm-hmm. to become.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: So, what the, what a lot of my module um, kind of themes have been is is, is again, how um, how do they imagine what is better, right? What can they imagine or expect is better than this? Because this right now is shit, and that's what the news keeps peddling. So, partly that there is definitely for me personally. There's definitely an intentional machine that wants to profit from despair. Um, Facebook algorithms, we know this. Um, it is an intentional agenda mm-hmm. to keep pumping despair as a me- and fear as a means of controlling the population and manipulating them emotionally to either buy more stuff or just comply and do other things. Um, so that's my point about despair is that whenever you get statisticians that say, but technically, technically things are much better, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's working on this binary that it's always a yes and yes, things are better in certain contexts. Yes, things are worse in other contexts. They all exist at the same time. Um, so yeah. instead of battling the old numbers game again, I think it is that Like uh, based on like some of my notes here, it's just like what is worth living for, Like, right? What is worth dying for? Um, and I think Richard writes in like, terms of the need for sanctification and the whole kind of, you know, what is sacred weight and significance. Mm-hmm. So um, at the moment, to an antidote to despair is also, because as, I don't know, I'm just gonna generically call it evil, bit, like as the capitalist machine will have it, why make money on just this despair when you can make money on the cure for that despair as well, which is desire, which Richard Beckwell also mentions, which is like, um, and if anybody wants to research this, in America, they had big billboards that say from zero to happy in one hour, Amazon Prime. Beep. All right. so hmm. your life is shit, buy more stuff. Keep buying, keep consuming, like the gluttony, the greed. So yeah, so in a way, the virtues have been hijacked somehow and it's um becoming vice and and not recognizing that they're vices so in the teleological sense the language matters because in a way um if we're talking about we we are teleological species we are bombarded by advertising we have been for Mm. a really long time and that is spell work Right. When I ask my students, what do they see the future, they refer to um, what they've seen in the world. So what they see becomes. um, Yeah, it just informs their imagination and they cannot unsee it. And when I ask them to have a brief of, okay you have a brief as a student, unsee the future. They can't. It's really hard. And they're 18. They cannot stray away from dystopic visions, from what's advertised. It's really hard for them to generate alternatives. Okay. So we keep saying change, 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 but they just they can't know what they don't know either. Yeah.
0: So is the world broken? Now, Eve Poole, you've been mentioning some stuff in the chat. Eve, do you wanna I mean in response to Rena, you started to 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 tweet some stuff. I mean
6: Yeah, uh, I mean, I just I just Richard, I absolutely adored this. Um because because I think it is It is so true because all of us who are dealing with teenagers and young people and anxiety and mental health and all of that, we know that this isn't some sort of odd thing that's happened it's because the world is shit now we all were young once I'm sure being an old person and you know it's always been like that I remember in the 80s we were all sort of hiding under our desk practicing for the four minute warning and Mm -hmm. you you know it's always going to be a disaster when you're 16 or 18 or, or whatever but there seems to be something very particular and very global and very gloomy about the sheer volume of hopelessness, which is currently everywhere you look. And I totally agree, as you know, from all the stuff I've written on capitalism, that this is aided and abetted by an incredibly sophisticated consumerist narrative, which, as Richard points out, has kind of just taken over as a monopoly monopoly narrative for meaning making. And I guess for me, what I particularly appreciated about your call to action, Richard, is that we know everyone has a value system because you develop one in order to be able to kind of make decisions about, are you going to thump your brother? Are you going to nick things? Are you going to go to school? Are you going to get a job? You know, we we all have a metaphysic. It's just that we no longer have any competence in surfacing it, understanding it, interrogating it, naming it, you know, all of these things because all of the old ways in which those narratives were developed and categorised and, you know, made a thing in society, have all sort of collapsed. Um, and so i I really respond to the issue we've all got as a sort of Christianish outfit where we just assume a lot of shared ground. Um, and the second you speak to someone like my husband, you realize it's just not there, and they just think you're talking nonsense. So I'm really interested in how can we be, as you say, evangelistic about the hope that's in us, but in a language that is not about telling people that we've got the life raft. And if only they say 10 Hail Marys, they'll be sorted. Mm. But is actually being interested in what do they care about then? You know, we all crave meaning making. So probably mm-hmm. people are trying to make meaning. It's just that it's much easier just to look at the billboard about Amazon and think, well, oh, that'll be it. <laughs> and it'll arrive tomorrow. <laughs> so um, I really appreciate this. And it's been a real um, challenge to me to think about how am I, getting beyond just all my preaching about capitalism and what to do about everything to how do we actually have an interesting and interested conversation um, about the hope that's in us so
0: richard i there's some stuff coming in and it's related to eve's point just now about trying to find language for metaphysics because so we we have a quote coming in says part of our problem is metaphysics is still very tied to the language of fourth century councils and 13th century scholastic monks and and I know that uh, David Blower is on the call. I, I, I might call on him in a second because uh, one of his comments to you was it was how uh, how Christendom itself has contributed to to the Enlightenment problem that we've mentioned. So I I, I might get David no. to, to jump in in a second. But, Richard, I do want you to, to comment a little bit on how do we find language to talk about metaphysics in a day and age in which the Christian language itself is either run out of gas. <laughs> It's coasting on fumes or it's completely meaningless to a lot of people.
2: Yeah. I mean, I wish I had a great, you know, answer to that. Um, Because I think sometimes what happens is we, we try to, we did, we demythologize it so much that then it's easily kind of co-opted. Right. Right. And it loses, it's, it loses any sort of distinctive you know, edge to, edge to it. Um, so to give one example from like my most recent book, so psychologists have discovered that there, there's a, a variable that's highly predictive of psychological health and well-being called uh, mattering. And mattering is just this uh, kind of durable conviction that you matter. Okay. Uh, I mean, so, and you matter no matter what you matter in your shame, and you matter in your failure. You matter when you're winning, and you matter when you're losing. You matter when you're at the top, and you matter what you're, you know. And 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 so, you know, Christians have a name for that, right? We call it grace. We call it right that there's a kind of a value and a worth that you just kind of cosmically get because, right, you're God. You're a child of God, um, and. And so I, so when I talk about mattering to my students, I can talk about it as a psychologist, I can say, you know, you know, one of the biggest durable predictors of well-being and happiness is this conviction that you matter, but at some point you're going to run into the psychological issue of is, is my mattering still just a product of my own self-talk? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like, is it, it is this a, is this a sticky note that I put on my mirror every morning, and say like you, you are, you, you know, you're awesome, Richard, or like, you know, you're the, you know, because, because if it's still just self-referential at some point, you kind of realize I'm still just, I'm still just talking to myself here. And, uh, and that's where I start bumping into the metaphysical issue, because now we're no longer just talking about self-affirmations, but I'm talking about something that's just the truth. hmm You know, that's true regardless of your – the poisoning of your own mind, right? It's just the truth. And so when I talk about evangelism and I talk to my students as they're dealing with their shame and their neurosis, I am functioning like an evangelist. I'm trying to convince them of a truth that I believe is real independently of their neurosis. And so, yeah. How do I how do I describe all that in a way that doesn't sound very religious? Um, Yeah. uh, How do you? And even maybe
0: maybe you don't. Maybe you do sound religious on purpose. How do you approach that with your students?
2: Well, you kind of heard it right there. You know, I I mean, this is the talk I gave yesterday. You know, I said what is I said what is grace but the interruption of the poisoning of your own mind. That's what I said to them. Now, did that get their attention? Did that move the needle? You know, I don't know, but they got quiet and very reflective, which is you know a win. What is great? year olds, you know, interruption
0: to the poisoning of your yeah. own
2: mind. Right. That you just it. You're in your own stuff. You're poisoning your own mind. Yeah. And then there's this interruption that kind of stops that. You can lay that. You can lay the burden of yourself down. And that's the thing with young people. They're just so tired of being themselves because in the modern world without a sense of mattering, you're always performing the self. The self is always this performance of, especially with social media. Social media has created an increasingly performative self and they're just, it's tiring, you know? And, and the truth that you can lay that down for a second and just rest into what we would call grace. You can see that they kind of like want that like a glass of cold water in the desert. So, So I do think there may be ways of describing these things in a way that might appeal to um, a younger audience, mm-hmm. but I, I i would just say I'm still experimenting. Like I, I think my in my interactions with raising two sons, and speaking out of a prison, and dealing with poverty in my city, and talking to young people, like I think it's just a laboratory where I'm trying to find a compelling way to talk about these things that Eve said are just not taken as givens anymore, um, and um, uh. So yeah, I don't, I, you know, if I, if I knew the answer to that, Stephen, I'd, you know, I don't know, I don't know.
0: I was, I was always you struck just, how pastoral just it all is. Like, and we've already, I mean, it, the talk here is instantly like, Rena went straight to her students, Eve went straight to her children, you talked about your young people that you have to take care of. Like, it's so quick how this discussion just becomes about taking care of vulnerable young human beings, basically, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I
2: think when we talk about hope sickness, I do think you're seeing amongst young people increasing rates of un unwellness, um, crisis of meaning, the men, a mental health crisis that's being exacerbated, um, and so yeah, I think a lot of us are uh, concerned about the generation coming up behind us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know Alicia, you you deal a lot with with young people, young adults. Do you want to? You're making some comments in the chat. Do You want to? Th- offer your thoughts
6: uh I, well i was just thinking as you were saying that i think it's more um it, it's taking care of of the child in in ourselves um and so we we immediately think to those that we we are kind of uh you know our our children or our students but but really i think it's i think it's uh talking to the to the five-year-old us um Uh, until we can do that we we can't affect change in any any young person i don't think so perhaps that's more the question
0: so uh uh uh, metaphysics as self-care but not as shallow self-affirmation but i'm thinking about in terms of like aligning yourself with with the with the reality of the universe right so trying to be aligned with what the way things really are is seems to be an important act of uh self-control or discipline or something i don't i'm i'm reaching for the words as well here but i because i want to try and stay away from that kind of therapeutic self-help stuff that we 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 don't really want to do the empty emptiness of looking in the mirror and telling yourself that i'm going to be okay and i'm a winner but you also want to be able to get a hold of yourself and say no you're going to interrupt the poisoning of your own mind by saying 'The, the thoughts i have are not i don't own every thought i have they've come to me through various some very pernicious uh, avenues some of these thoughts these things telling me who i am about myself we have a a, a a a phrase came up mj i don't know if you're willing to talk about this matter matters is mj going to would you like to explicate to us a little bit what matter matters means
7: sure can you hear me yes we can okay i am not a process theologian like mason menenga but i followed him for a while and okay. sort of cross-reference what he talks about kind of my own research and so a lot of it is just pointing to uh, embodiments and so you know we're really used to kind of tracking our meaning through our heads through our minds and so uh, when I think of evangelism I immediately go to logically convince people of something in our heads right Mm. but that's not really how it works, and you know, I'm thinking of my metaphysical process. Um, one of the reasons I started untangling or deconstructing my Christianity was because it didn't it didn't match my lived reality, and so right. it had to it had to come down because it was there was cognitive dissonance with what I was living in my body and what I thought I was supposed to believe, and so realigning that has really been a matter of. Um, yeah, like coming back to my embodied experience, and um, in psychology right now, there's a lot of work in what's called somatics, which is basically the idea that our, our memories, our meaning, um, our pain actually lives in our body, in our DNA,
3: mm-hmm.
7: and so do our stories, right? Our collective stories, and so by actually tuning into our body's wisdom, um, and our body's sensations we can start to shift things and heal um, and with that comes a, a lot of um, like the necessity of reconnecting right because you are reconnecting to your own body but we're also a collective with other people with the universe with the divine and so um, that process of reconnecting is what's healing um, and kurt thompson actually was the first christian that introduced me to that he studies like neuroscience and psychology and he talks a lot about shame right, which can feel kind of like the opposite of, of grace, you know, that, that poisoning of the mind. And he said that the, the antidote to shame is to start to reconnect those pieces, right? So reconnecting with our, with our bodies, reconnecting with our, our value, reconnecting with others. And so that's, that's where, that's the trajectory of holiness and grace, um, rather than trying to, to put these like little boxes in our heads say like let's convince ourselves of what's right and what's wrong
0: which is Richard. one of the things i, I i'm going to try and bring david blower into this conversation if he's if he's willing to be unmuting himself this is one of the things <laughs> that was coming up in, in, in the little conversation that, that you two were having in the, in the journal in a way I, I mean so mj mentioned the deconstructing from some of the unhelpful or or, or, or uh inhuman christianity that she'd been sort of that was kind of part of her DNA. Uh, and David Blower has mentioned, I'll let him speak for himself, but just this idea that reading your essay, Richard, it's almost like you're saying, well, the world just needs more Christianity or we need to just speak Christianity better. And I think there's a lot of us who are saying, well, actually, no Christianity built this world that we're in the, the world that we've got, the broken world, the fucked up shitty world that our young people have inherited is Christendom, it's a Christian world, it's a Christian enlightenment, it's Christian capitalism, right? So how do we, I, I, this is where I'm gonna bring David in and, and, and some of his comments. And I'd love to, to hear you, you two comment to, uh, to each other about uh, the, the forms of how Christianity does relate to this world that we're in. David, do you care to tell us what your comment was to Richard in the, in the book?
8: Sure, sure. I, I felt the provocation as you described it, Richard, I enjoyed reading it. And and I sort of um, uh, was grating a little bit as I went through it, as I I think I was supposed to do. Um, And then I just um, fell into its lap very happily by the end, um, where you were speaking about uh, virtue, the practice of virtue that grows out of... um, healthy metaphysics. And it it becomes this, uh, the image of the the hidden life, the the, the life that's lived in a, in beautiful and simple connectedness, um, in in its way and has grounding to do so. Um, but it didn't, but, but it, it didn't solve the, the issue for me, I suppose. Um, in short, the issue is to, I'm interested in, um, in what you would say about what you mean by the Christian imagination, Um, for all the obvious reasons, uh, I'm I'm sure, I mean, maybe some of it just seemed, you know, felt too obvious to you and you thought, well, no one's going to think I mean that. But of course, I'm reading, you know, thinking, um, and it was very much a West centric kind of argument. So there was a bit of a uh, mismatch between talking about the world and talking about the West as a story within a, within a greater story there. Uh, But, you know, when we talk about the post-Christian West, I mean, the West was still very Christian when it went into the Enlightenment. And um, a lot of the, you know, um, the things that has made the world a very hopesick and horribly bludgeoned place, you know, a lot of the atrocities um, that happened, you know, when we went into the Enlightenment with um, European colonialism and 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 slavery and Holocaust, Uh, all you know these things were all done in, um, you know, on the back of the Christian West. It's only sort of into the 20th century. It's almost the end of the Enlightenment that um, that you enter a a phase that you would think of as the post-Christian West. And you had the, um, I mean, you had the Karl Marx. What would he think of uh, what he created in Putin's Russia? And I'm thinking, well, Putin stood next to Patriarch Kirill, the um, you know, the mm-hmm. Orthodox, uh, yeah. The the obvious and crude question is, so what what do you mean by the Christian West? The the more nuanced thing I would like to tease out in it is is my feeling that the vision that you put at the end, it seems to me, is in contradiction to the um, um, the harkening back to a Christian golden age, in that. I, I think an, auth- an authentic Christian imagination would never point to itself as the solution. Um, and I, th- I think that the, the vision that you land in at the end is not one that would point to itself as the solution, if you know what I mean. Uh, so yeah, those mm-hmm. are the, uh, the shape of my, um, my questions and, and things I wanted to, things I wished I could ask you about while I was typing my, my thoughts back.
2: Uh, yeah, I knew writing it that that was going to get. That's that's the provocation I mentioned at the the very beginning, um, because I know a lot of this audience is working really hard with the legacy, you know, trying to deconstruct, um, either deconstructing faith or obviously kind of confronting the imperial, um, the sacralizing of imperial, colonial, capitalistic interventions of the West, and so 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 to you know, mention heaven. You know, at the end, uh, you know, as some of that is just me being daring. (laughs) So it's just me just kind of going like, hey, I want to I want to like defend heaven, you know, in a in a paper, you know, in an intellectual context. And so to see if I could pull that off. Um, But in response to David, David's question, like all, all true and all legitimate. What do I mean by the Christian imagination? you know i would point to somebody like you know tom holland's book dominion and and uh make an argument that the inheritances of the christian tradition um are things like um the inestimable like the foundation of humanism the the, the inestimable worth of every human person regardless of ethnicity or disability right that 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 idea is something that's been bequeathed to us from the the christian tradition it wasn't from the romans it wasn't from Plato or Aristotle. They had a ranked hierarchy in mind. Um, and it, by the way, it's not even a Christian idea. That goes back to the Hebrew people of people being created in the image of God. Um, I would say that that we inherit from the Christian tradition the a universal obligation for the repair of the world. Um, that we have a we have a responsibility to repair the world, and so that. Um, indifference to the suffering or the damage of the world is not a moral option and that we all have kind of emotional responses to people who just don't give a damn anymore um if you see me um, polluting the environment or littering on a beach like you have an emotional reaction to that and you don't think i can just kind of go like hey this is my lifestyle choice so we tend Mm -hmm. to still be governed by kind of a kantian deontological kind of idea that like uh, I think most of us are moral absolutists at some level. Now we might disagree about what those absolutes are. But most of us behave that way. To me, so when I speak on the Christian tradition, I'm not I'm talking about those kind of kind of default assumptions that if I went around the screen and just said, "Tell me what your highest values and commitments are," um, and we listed those out, that we would have broad agreement on what those things are. And then if I asked you about the origin story of where the genealogy of those things came from, we're probably gonna have to gesture towards the revolution that began with one Jesus of Nazareth. That's how I would argue that. And I'm happy for people to disagree mm. with me, but I would I would argue that's where I would argue that. Um, uh, and, and some of the and some of my focus on the West wasn't trying to be parochial, it was trying to be respectful of the East. Um, does it make sense? Like I was trying to name my social location to be honest about what I was saying and circumscribe that. So, so it's fair to kind of criticize the parochialism of the language and the focus, but partly was because I didn't want to speak where I lacked certain expertise and, and, you know, I, like, I didn't want to be colonial. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, uh, so I, I didn't do that. And so there, some of that is also trying to be careful, um, with some of that stuff as well. But. I'll, to come back to my point it is okay for me to, for somebody to say i reject christianity because of all the evils that that we've just kind of uh, done a tour through i'm like that's fine then then um but still i would like us to be honest about where these post-christian commitments come from and if they don't come from christianity um then at least make them explicit where they're rooted and why I should care. Otherwise, again, I have a cigarette to smoke, a whiskey collection to curate, and a Netflix show to watch. So give me something to F and care about. You know, if yeah. Do you know what I mean? So to me that's where I would kind of come back to. So fine, jettison it, but give me something compelling to burst the bubble of my self-indulgence in a way that is morally compelling. And not just for a season of Twitter outrage, but the the faithful, effortful, lifespan commitment to actually move the world to a better place. What what like where does that come from? Other yeah. than you just appealing to my my warm heart. Um, and so that that's to me where I would kind of push back a little bit, which is fine. Then evangelize me to your new yeah metaphysic um otherwise capitalism is going to hijack everybody and so, the world will churn churn on for another 24 hours that's that that'd be what i'd say
0: so can we see uh, mark sampson had his indicated let's 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 turn to the economist mark sampson here <laughs>
3: I might reject that title. Okay, okay. Um,
0: <laughs> give us give us your real title, Mark.
3: Uh, I will, Mark Sampson. Um, yeah, no, this is fascinating. Thank you, Richard. As always, I find your writing just endlessly worth my time. Um, and yeah, everyone's comments are really, really helpful. I think. I guess one question I have. Um, is, you know, there's this kind of, there is this kind of descriptive part of your, of your essay where you're, you're, you're using McIntyre's analysis of, of kind of modern, the modern ethical sort of quagmire, you know, made famous in After Virtue. And and yet, at the same time, I know, and you brought this up in this chat, you're a big fan of Charles Taylor. um. Both have both, you know, similar, uh, you know, Catholic influenced sort of located in North America philosophers. But both, I think, in some ways, end up in quite different places, even if they're subtly different. And I feel like Taylor's analysis of modernity um, might find a pathway potentially. And I think he's himself maybe is a bit conflicted about this sometimes through these, these two poles set up in this conversation, one um, being, you know, with this, these two poles really of, you know, for, for MacIntyre, um, uh, it was uh, Nietzsche or Aristotle, essentially, a stoical kind of heroism, you know, of Nietzsche. You know, there's, there's no meaning, but the ethical must continue to be sought, you know, whatever. And then Aristotle, you know, some sort of teleological sort of purposeful, um, holistic sort of way of metaphysic. And I think, Mac- I think what Taylor does, and I might be wrong on this, he, he tries a more subtle reading of modernity than, than McIntyre, and, and still wants to say that actually is there, so- there is something ethical going on here. Um, even if it's in some sort of post-Telos, or at least a very different form of ethical reasoning, And he finds that a little bit in this notion of authenticity, um, which I think is at the centre of some of this stuff. And of course, capitalism has profoundly been built on this notion of the authentic self and the various ways in which that can be. Um, My son's coming to listen to me. He's so excited about this. Uh, The the ethical, you know, that this notion of, of authenticity, authentic self, that there is some sense of self that, it, that there's an ethical obligation to now of course you know and you're a psychologist Richard so you can have all the evidence to show how that framework is problematic but Taylor wants to see that something in that is some sort of essentially gift or latent gift or something that has emerged theologically that still has substance that is still something around which a conversation uh like there's not it doesn't have to determine itself as some sort of ethical some sort of stoicism essentially or nihilistic stoicism so I don't know Richard I feel like myself I have sort of McIntyre on one shoulder and Taylor on the other and I like them both equally but they lead me in slightly different directions at slightly different times and I'm just wondering what you yeah what you think about that I guess
2: yeah I'm rereading a secular age and so my memory might be shady. You might have you you know you, you might have a more current read on on that. But I read McIntyre's conversation about authenticity is just another just another version of the buffered self that I no longer look outward for, as I would as I've been arguing like toward a metaphysical teleological ground of being. But instead, I go inward and kind of Stephen's point earlier. I come up with my own telos. So I I again I got to reread it. But I kind of read him as thinking about the ethic of authenticity is just a symptomatic of kind of some of the the malaise of modernity that I have to try to be my own, own authentic self. And if he doesn't think that way and he thinks that's a good move, um, you, I think you've read Honey, Magic, Eels, Mark. Um, you know, I kind of take on that ethic of authenticity pretty hard and to say that is one of the so, – so I would disagree with Taylor about that. I think us trying to be authentic is not is not a great way to kind of a stable route for happiness. Just because I look at my students and see, I, I think the authenticity conversation presumes a kind of degree of stability to the self. like that somehow deep inside of me there is this kind of thing called myself, and I can figure that out or at least get my Enneagram number. Um, then you know, then I then I got the key that'll unlock myself. But but um, I think, and you know, Buddhism comes in here too. The self can be a bit of an illusion. You know, it's a hall of mirrors in there. So back to the poisoning of one's own mind. Um, I don't know if spending a whole lot of time inside yourself is the best way to get happy. Um, so I'd probably go back to the embodiment practices. Sometimes what well, we're learning about the self, but sometimes you got to kind of like turn away from it. That's like that's what mindfulness practices. We need to kind of like step away from ourselves for a little bit. So I don't know if that's responding directly to what you're saying, Mark, but but uh I don't I would just say I have a little bit of skepticism if authenticity helps here, especially given, as you've mentioned, the way marketing practices hijack that call um so easily. Can we bring- make you know, like the way the, the way capitalism kind of causes us to kind of pursue authenticity through buying more products
0: can we bring professor linda woodhead into this discussion she's she's got her hand it's up not allowed to call me that Stephen. oh why not sorry linda woodhead we're
1: amongst friends <laughs> um i really think you're onto something richard with your stress on the importance of metaphysics and um but which metaphysics? That's what I want to ask you. You know, which Christian metaphysic? Because when you talk about metaphysics, you tend to slide into values. So do you mean that, you know, obviously, as you know, there's no one Christian metaphysic, we all know that. So is it the mm-hmm. metaphysic of, I don't know, pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, which is actually rather a lovely ranks of angels and Neoplatonic vision? Or is it the modern Protestant atonement focus one where we're all sinners and we have to... Mm-hmm. Jesus dies for us. We've got to give our life to him. And then if we're lucky, we'll be saved and we'll go to heaven. And where is that heaven? So I think Christianity has got a range of versions of metaphysics, but it, they've failed for people. Because when you ask the fundamental questions like, OK, so where is Jesus now? Well, he's bodily resurrected. Where's that body? Christians haven't got answers. The, the narrative failed. The metaphysic failed. And people have got alternative metaphysics and the most there are two well the most important is it's expanded because of the scientific cosmological vision it's a vastly expanded view of ontology and there's a there's a negative version that we've, we've been talking about the nihilistic version uh, and then increasingly there's the interconnected you know, gaia is the best version of it in which we're decentered but it's not a meaningless universe. We are interconnectedly part of it, and there is some mystery and magic meaning in it. That's a very powerful metaphysic for lots of people today. I think it's probably overtaken the the nihilistic one. So hasn't Christianity lost the argument on metaphysics, to sum up? And um, I'm not sure which one you're advocating, but I'm not sure you could defend it. And there are alternative versions, but they're really important, and you're on to that. And I think, for, I think values are something very separate. I, I'd separate them out much more from metaphysics. I think the connection between the two is extremely tenuous. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I would just say that, um, and again, this might be a provocation. I'm looking at the comments, and I think Mark didn't like my reference to Dominion. Um will uh, get Mark Dominion. in soon, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah but, uh, but I, I I would say that the I, so I would argue I'd push back against it and I would say that the Christian metaphysics has one that's that'd be my argument that that there there is no consistent difference like if I read a secular if I, if I read like one of the new atheists you know or or somebody trying to ground a naturalistic ethics I mean you almost can just turn to the end of the chapter you can skip you can skip all of the the rigmarole and go to the end of the chapter and they're going to basically say we need to care for our neighbor. We need to care mm. for the environment. We need, like, like, like there is no, there is no rival out there. There are a few. Like, you might see, like, a. Peter why, why do you call
1: that a Christian metaphysics?
2: Because genealogy.
1: Christianity did like not we're, believe we're, in the equality of all human beings until very, very late in its life.
2: Okay. Look at uh, Roman, again, Ca- we, look at Roman we could, Catholic could, teaching. Like we can argue about that, but what I'm saying is those views emerged out of the long pedagogy of the west that begins with the hebrew prophets and jesus of nazareth and those early christian communities now you can now i can see how somebody says i don't i don't believe that i don't believe that story and we can just agree to disagree about that but that's that's where i would push back and say that that those the, the seeding of those values have won in the west functionally and we have been, and there's a lot of, i'm not taylor makes that argument so holland's not the only one but there's many historians that have made that argument people can disagree with that but i would say so i would just say i disagree i think the christian metaphysic has been triumphant um and because it's it's reached like a a broad ethical consensus. So for example, so like Mark doesn't like dominion, but my first question to Mark would be, sorry, Mark, to kind of be preemptive here, is can Mark articulate one way he dissents from the broad Judeo consensus? You know, and my hunch would be he doesn't. That's what I mean by the victory of that metaphysic.
1: I think you're taking a common values consensus, contemporary one that's been dominant since human rights and you're calling that a Christian metaphysic.
2: Right, I'm saying what gave birth to the human rights metaphysics is birthed out of the Judeo-Christian consensus. There isn't a radical break there. And if you disagree, that's fine. You're still left with the point of how you ground that and not make that arbitrary. Because with something coming out, think about transhumanism. Right, we're going to reach a new um, or something like eugenics. Think about a new world that's coming, and we're going to say, you know what? If somebody has a disability, they still need to be treated like, you know, as an authentic person. Like at some point, somebody's going to question that fragile ground of human dignity. And humans, we're going to have to say that value, and you're right, I'm using value and metaphysics interchangeably there, um, is a non negotiable. And somebody will say, well, why? like why is it non-negotiable at some point we'll just say that's a, just that's a stake we put in the ground <laughs> but um my, my mis-
1: but what i but metaphysics and ontology is about something much bigger than human rights it's about the cosmos it's about the universe it's uh-huh. about the fundamental nature of isness uh-huh. and i haven't heard your metaphysic i've heard a set of values about humans being of equal worth but not an ontology, not metaphysics, but I'm really convinced well, that metaphysics about...
2: matter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so broadly speaking, I've been speaking about the Christian metaphysics. Like I'm writing from a Christian metaphysical worldview. Does that
0: help? But what are the metaphysics? You've been talking about the values, but what about, what, what, is, the, what is the isness of things from a Christian point of view? Well,
2: I mean, so for example, let's go back to hope, right? So a Christian would say that something was revealed ontologically um, in the resurrection event. So that was right. So you, from a Christian metaphysics, you would right. say because the res- the resurrection signaled that reality was an open rather than a closed system, um, and that metaphysical commitment that we are not bound into kind of a, you know, a materialistic cosmos, that there there exists a, so the way, oh, I, I blanked on his name. So so cr- the Christian metaphysics is what we call an ont. I, I would describe it as an ontology of life rather than an ontology of death. The ontology of death is the, the cosmos begins with mindlessness, mindless, you know, mind emerges for a season, maybe as long as our sun lasts, right? As long as that lasts. And then we're eventually going to go to the cosmic heat death of the universe. So the alpha is mindlessness the omega is mindlessness right so that's the nihilistic metaphysics christian would confess because of the resurrection an ontology of life that beyond the material cosmos there is a capacity for life and therefore and also love so the ground of being is inherently relational you can bring up trinitarian theology god is love you can argue it from a couple different ways so those are some of my ontological commitments that God that the that the cosmos is inherently relational, that um, life and love are the ontological ground rather than mindlessness and death, and so those are just beliefs, those are right metaphysical ontological claims I make from those claims come a variety of values about the dignity of human persons, about hope um right so if that helps a little bit that's me you know surfacing some metaphysics
0: now if if only we had an author of the secret history of christianity that we could draw from mark vernon you've your name's been dropped a few times what, what what's your thoughts on all this that we've been talking about
4: hey look well look thank you i mean it's a really big discussion and, and very rich for it but the uh Tom Holland, mention of Tom Holland's dominion was indeed the provocation for me. Um, I think it <laughs> woos Christians into a kind of complacency that they've got secret liberal backers. And uh, um, but it, I, I really think it's ruinous because it turns Christianity into a whole series of um, sort of measures, which it just fails at um, when it comes to liberal values for the most part. So Christian, Christians sitting around thinking they've got a better a morality I think just plays incredibly badly um, because whilst, you know, a bishop might say something that a lot of people agree with when it comes to immigration, they also hear bishops saying, well, we're not sure about your divorce and we're not sure about your children that you've had out of wedlock, which of course is most children in the UK now. Um, You know, Christianity, it turns Christianity into um, a historical faith. Um, and this business about which you mentioned your essay about the arc of justice and so on I think that's really foolish with you know and I'm aware that Martin Luther King said that I'm much more on Tolkien's side actually the long defeat Um, you know it it converts Christianity into a a struggle to kind of empirically demonstrate things like treating the resurrection as some kind of proof of an ontology Um, and uh, rather than I'm um, seeing that um, it's a participative experience that we need of these things, so that we know, for example, as the mystics all said, the incarnation is not something that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's something that's happening now in our souls. And unless it can become, um, I, I, I'm, I'm all for the subjective, actually. Um, I think this push to try and objectively clarify things is a complete mistake. Um, and very modern, actually. It didn't really happen until about the 17th century. If you wanted to know what was true, you, as Jesus said, you look to the kingdom of God that's within you. Um, uh, the essence of things is found um, directly in our experience. Um, so, you know, I could go on on all that front, but I just think that, um, you know, Holland's book um, woos us into, I um, think the Christian exceptionalism is I don't actually know how a historian can really argue that Christianity somehow pulls a new morality out of the hat. I just think he hasn't really read Plato or something. Um, it's quite bizarre. But anyway, look, um, I, I, the person I found hoping at the minute with all this is, is William Blake, actually, because I think what he understood and to come to maybe the second part of the discussion this evening is that the point about m- capitalism and modernity is that it's become an antichrist but in the true sense, which is it's almost like Christ, but just not. Um, and so, for example, um, as, just to pick up one, th- one observation of Blake, which I think is brilliant, he said that um, more and more is the cry of the mistaken soul, nothing less than all will satisfy man. And I think what he understood there is that modernity understands that we desire the all and we desire God, and that that infinite desire should be absolutely central to anything that tries to address um, the state of uh, the human soul. But what um, capitalism does is that converts that into saying, no, no, forget the all thing, just have a a bit more of this, a bit more of that, a bit more of something else. And then my fear is that Christians now say, no, we must actually sit on our desires and say we must want less. Um, and that we must hold back and that to to, to be virtuous um is, is is the opposite almost of wanting the all. Um, and so that you know, this is the turning point, if you like, that um it, that we, we get wooed um to a liberal agenda on the one hand, but this brings in what Blake would call this kind of antichrist version of Christianity, which looks like um, it's Christianity, but actually really is not at all. And maybe this really all comes together when it comes to how we treat death um, and regard death. And this is what I tried to say in my response in the, in the journal. Um, the real challenge for me, and this is clearly a challenge, is can I accept that death is the way? Um, and not just death at the end, but as Blake put it, um, you know, every kindness is a little death. Um, death is, is something that we live with day by day. And um, then I think it's hard to um, to fudge Christianity into a kind of um, uh, liberalism plus prayers. Mark, I guess I'd ask
2: you, because I, I was really intrigued by your response, but do you think you can create a sustainable giving myself away, like almost a canonic giving myself away in little acts of dying without a metaphysics of resurrection?
4: I don't that, I mean, I think that's becoming, how you discover like, there's more that's precisely how you know that the resurrection is true not because you read it in the bible um, but because you know it in your life you realize that um, you know uh, your um fear of death and I'm speaking you know this is something I hope um, I'm trying mm-hmm. to, uh, to 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 understand myself to or not even understand but to know myself um, is that um uh, my fear for my life um is because i've made mistakes about the nature of my life um deep um experiential mistakes about the nature of my life and when i know my life and um, to be my being to be um just a reflection and echo a mirror a participation in divine being then um i will know what the resurrection means richard
0: what do you think well, i'm going to uh I mean I, I would give push you the a final word further yeah. into
2: that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um uh hey, I guess my final word is do you all feel sufficiently provoked? <laughs> 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 so so let me let me offer apologies uh to all the provoked and irritated and those who I have uh disagreed with. It it is a habit of mine, um to never write things that my audience will enjoy um, because I don't think anybody grows unless they feel like they're pushed a little bit. And so I did want to push. Um, and and I want you to know that I have felt pushed back on um, by you with some like excellent insights and questions. Um, and so I think it's been good for me to clarify my thought. And that's kind of what I was trying to say at the beginning. Um, I I think if I just articulate something beautiful and you go, hey, that was beautiful, that was really inspiring, I I think we all kind of lead the same people. So, what I wanted to try to do in this conversation in an article is maybe surface some things to where we might actually disagree a little bit about what is or is not possible um, in reaching our young people, in addressing our mental health crisis and trying to get the business or the corporate world to adopt very different models of education um, or how we get people to chase in the profit motive. And really, if I give you anything else today, let me just say, this is what I wanted you to think about. Do Do we have anything compelling enough to penetrate, the false eschatologies, to use my article, the false eschatologies of capitalism. Um, and if so, uh, how do we evangelize or persuade or convince or woo our young people to the corporate CEOs of the world? How do we how do we convert them to that vision? Um, so to me, that that's my challenge for all of us. And maybe looking backwards to Christianity is a bad move. And maybe we need to create something fresh and new. I I mean, there's something compelling about it. It might be too hard to resurrect this zombie that we know is institutionalized, organized Christianity. Um, Like, I get all that. Um, But but I think the challenge before us, however we feel about the viability of resuscitating Western Christianity, um, is that I think all of us do share some broadly shared values, if not metaphysics. Um, how do we make those compelling? That that I think we can all, and I think artists have their, artists that I see on my screen have their ways of making it compelling. Academics and intellectual and cognitive types like me have my own way of making it compelling. The psychotherapists in the room, the economists in the room, the, the activists in the room, just, we have all our ways to make these values compelling. And so let me just call us to that shared labor, because um, I think that is where we'll find our common ground
0: richard i want to uh first I'm going to thank you, but first I'm going to thank everyone who joined this call. Thank you for your comments, thank you for your beautifully put queries and questions uh thank you for all the the writing that's gone on. I'm sorry I couldn't engage with all of it in the in the text chat, but it was so good to see and i and I do love it uh, I want to extend a thank you to Alicia and Paul milbank, Alicia Willis and Paul Milbank, who have started something really great with the host community, and then with Unfold Media, which is the outfit that publishes the Yoho journals. They've created a a great conversation. And if you're a listener here and you've been hearing all these voices piping up, you should join the Yoho community. Go to Unfold Media. And, and click, follow the links to the Yoho journals, and you will find so many of the people that we're speaking today are themselves Yoho authors and will be authors in the future. We have uh, new stuff coming up. Kester Bruin, the pirate theologian himself, will be uh, doing the next Yoho journal. But we have so many. Can I can I argue that we all
2: should wear eyepatches? We should all wear eyepatches. We should all show more than eye patch on. And, and, yes, and eye patches are—they're—they're
0: they're absolutely yeah. uh, necessary, and hooks, and everyone has a parrot on their shoulder as well. I'll just say that to the yeah. listeners.
6: Well, if if you if you write for us, I'll, I'll turn you into a pirate. That's the deal.
0: Everyone gets a pirate uh, biography for themselves. So yes, please do uh, follow the Yahoo Journals. Please do subscribe to them. Please do go to unfoldmedia.com, and you will find everything you need to know. And finally, can I just thank uh, Dr. Richard Beck for sharing uh, his time and his talents with us? Richard, I, I personally will just say you are such a kind—you're one of the kindest, most wise, and gentle human beings I know. It's an absolute privilege to be with you. Your writing has changed my life. So, if you feel any pushback here, just know that it's—it's it's from somebody who who considers you a giant, and I—I'm um, testing my <laughs> mettle against. Uh, An absolute wonderful human being. So thank you, Richard, for, for gracing us with your time. We really appreciate all that you do. So, hey, thank you, guys. Thank you for it all. Farewell. Bless everyone. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, Please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patron page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.